This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. This month, Angel Witch will release their fifth full-length album, Angel of Light, via Metal Blade Records. Angel Witch's 1980 eponymous debut on Bronze Records created shockwaves that would resonate throughout the nascent realms of thrash, doom, and death metal. Now, nearly four decades later, the band remains custodians of a style that transcends era and archetype. Purchase your copy of Angel of Light by Angel Witch now at metalblade.com slash Angel Witch. Once again, Angel Witch. Angel of Light. Go to metalblade.com slash Angel Witch today.
the Metal Sucks Podcast with your hosts, Petter Speich, Brandon Hahn, and Jocelyn Sharp. Metal Sucks Podcast. Hello, friends out there. It is I, your host, Petter Speich. I am always joined by... It is I, your your friend, Brandon Hahn. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at <laughs> Mr. Hahn Comedy. <laughs> Do you want me to start over or are you good with what you just did? I'm fine with it. I'm okay, fine with great. it. Do you not see his Doc Brown hairdo today? Yeah, He's right. not really... Dude, dude, you got Doc Brown going on strong. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, Mr. Fusion... So this and, show is powered by. And also. <laughs> Jocelyn Sharp. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jocelyn Sharp. That's J-O-Z-A-L-Y-N. Sharp like a sharp knife. And always follow It's the Sylvia, Sylvia Alvarado, our other co-host on Twitter and Instagram. And if you guys want to follow me, I'm at Rise to Offend on Facebook and Twitter. Rise to Offend official on Instagram. This week, I get to talk with Tyler Bates, guys. Film composer, did the last two amazing Marilyn Manson records that we were all super happy of. But we are primarily going to talk about the latest show out here in Las Vegas, Cirque du Soleil's Run. He composed the music for that, guys. It is opening November 14th. I tell you right now, buy tickets, fly out, check out this fucking show. Great interview, great chat. Like I'm actually I said, seeing it this Thursday. I know. It's going to be awesome. It. It's going to be I'm awesome, jealous. dude. Yeah. Mm. So when you hear the music, know that Tyler Bates was behind it. Yeah, baby. One of the best film composers out there. If you guys don't know, he's done 300, Guardians of the Galaxy, John Wick, The Devil's Rejects, etc., etc. But anyways, yeah. Real lucky I got to Did chat with him. Did you just say etc. like excedrin? Yeah, yeah. Etc. 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 But before we jump into the interview, guys, as always, let's talk about a little bit of the Metal Sucks news. First news story, guys, I'm sure you heard the opening track that we played. Timmy Henson of Merciful Faith and King Diamond, all the records that, I mean, I hold every record he performed on very, very dearly. He passed away from a battle with cancer. Um, Obviously, super sad story, man. But his legacy um, to the younger fans, if you guys don't own Merciful Fates Melissa or Merciful Fates um, Don't Break the Oath or King Diamond's Abigail. Like, I hope you guys take the time to go and listen to those records and kind of listen to the music that they put out. I mean, Merciful Fate to me is one of the most important groundbreaking like Black Sabbath metal bands. Is that disagree or agree? No, I think it goes like this. Black Sabbath is Black Sabbath. They always will be. Yeah, but, always then will when, be. but when you look at a band like Merciful Fate, there's always a band like Merciful Fate that pushes Black Sabbath to be more Black Sabbath. You get what I'm saying? Why? It's like they take we, it. Yeah. yeah, we got to step our game up. We have yeah. to step our game up. And, and you can look at Merciful Fate and Black Sabbath. I mean, look, you, they're easily distinguishable. They're totally different bands in a lot of regards. But there's always going to be that band that gobbles up the headlines. But there's always going to be the band behind them that pushes the other bands to be better. And yeah. that's, that's what Merciful Fate was to me. I remember when they had the story earlier this year that Merciful Fate's reuniting and he's not going to be a part of it. And I was like, why? Well, obviously, he, he wasn't healthy enough. But uh, King Diamond sent out a, a great thing uh, talking about his friendship and all that stuff. So, guys, definitely, like I said, this week, so let's listen to some, some of his records and uh, remember that another uh, heavy metal legend has passed away from us. So, with that sad story, let's move forward to some good news. Lighthearted. Lighthearted story. Raging Against the Machine is officially reuniting in 2020. Thoughts? Uh, I like it. 
I was hoping maybe we would get some new music out of them. I don't think that's going to happen. Maybe a song. Mm. I could see them maybe getting together for a song. But I think when you look at maybe like a four song EP or something. Right, but something. I don't think they're going to give us a whole I don't think album. Gonna, I don't think they're going to. And honestly, I mean, it's like right now, if there's a band that we could use, we could definitely use some. Rage I would Against kill the for a new Rage album. But at the same time. We are still holding on to that nostalgia. It's been a long time. Last record they put out was in 2000 or 99, Battle mm-hmm. of Los Angeles. Uh, the trilogy of Rage Against the Machine. They, they don't have a misstep at all, if you guys don't know. Um, I've got to see them live many times in my life, and uh, they are fucking amazing live. So anybody that hasn't seen... When was the last time you saw them? Oh, I saw them at Vegas which is a festival out here, a hippie-type festival. It was like Flaming Lips were there and Beck and things like that, and Rage was playing there. And I want to say that was in 2003 or four. So it was, dude, they haven't... And I feel like they hey, stopped look, doing shows maybe like 2007. 15, 16 yeah. years. That's I mean, a that's time. a long time. And that's the one thing with Rage. When you look at Rage, you you are automatically pulled in by their energy. I mean, Zach De La Roca. That guy as a front man is one of the most it's energetic incredible. front men. Yeah. It's incredible. He, he, he is born to be on the stage. Yeah. Right. And that's the thing. But that was 15 years ago. Is he still the same Zach? It, are, I think it's inherent because uh, think look at the way he interacted with press and the way he interacted off stage with you know the entertainment world as a whole. Like I think that's who he is. I saw one time I saw uh, just to your point, and I think you're right. I don't think he's going to let us down no. because I saw uh, Jello Biafra way up there in age, and he was with Reverend Horton Heat, and that dude, and that advanced age mm. was. Fuck, had more energy than I could even imagine, and he was killing it, you know. So, if Zach comes back with even half of what Jello gave us, then that's probably better than most ninety percent of the front men that I could even think the of. The beautiful thing about Zach De La Roca is he had such an uh, uh, he has such a talent for channeling, like not to be pun be punny, but to channel his rage through his music. And mm. there's so much for him to be angry about right now. Yeah. And also vocally, his approach is more of a hip hop rappy type thing. It's not like he's got to hit high notes. But at the same know? time, but Zach's yell, his his oh. his snarl is one of the most legendary sounds in all of music, let alone metal. I mean, it's like he he's just got one of those those d- totally distinctive voices. And we've seen other bands in the past tr- like kind of sound like that. Like there, we were talking about a band called Fever 333. Mm. And that guy sounds just like Zach De La Roca. But he's got the youth. He's got the energy. And yes, I, I think that band very much channels, like you said, Rage. But I, I don't think the songs are even on. No, on they're on not half even. No, they're not even a, what, an eighth of what the, as there, good there as Rage Against the Machine. There is 10 songs on a Rage Against the Machine. Every record and that you, you and want every to hear song live. Was and awesome. Every song is yep. great. They, they are um, four guys that were made to make music together. And, and they came out at the perfect time back in 91. And I think those records, you listen back on a lot of records, not from the 90s, maybe that's because of my age, but that are dated, you know, but those hey. records. There's not a song, and not yeah. to hit on a hit, but there's not a song that hits me the way Bulls on Parade does. See, for me, you it's could say that with Yeah, you can say yeah. that with Freedom, you can say that with Bulls on Parade, you can say Killing the Name. Killing in the Name. Yeah. You can yeah. say that with, with, uh, with It freedom. just hits you in that place where the way that music, you know when you first like discover metal and you literally hear a song and you're like, oh, I want to run through drywall right, right now. I don't know what this emotion there's is, a, but that's what Rage does for, they just make me feel I'm like I want to yeah. run through drywall I want to run through drywall yeah just like no, j- o- only half inch not three quarter I'll, I'll not like, a stud I'm no, not an insane yeah, please, person just, just the drywall one of the times I saw them and I told you guys I saw them open for you two one of the times right and so 
their fans weren't going to mosh, I thought. But they did. Yeah. That's what Rage does. The times I saw them headlining, it was a fucking pandemonium. And I don't think you can even hold yourself back, dude, when you when those guitars play. I told Brandon when I saw Audio Slave, this was, you know, obviously years ago as well, but they they played Bulls on Parade instrumental. So Chris Cornell didn't come out and sing the song, but just the instrumental version was like a mosh pit. The rest yeah. of the show, there wasn't a mosh pit. Well, there is something but in it's that, that groove, it's that, man. And that's like, and that's one of those bands where, so every, where every member of the band is important. Every member of yeah. the band is important. It, it's what Pete said. They were meant to make music but together. They were meant to do this. When I first heard them on MTV, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know if I liked it. I didn't know. All I know, I, I just was like, that guy is fucking pissed. And then it's just, that's all I knew, right? That's all I knew. That's all I knew. I was like, that guy is. Is he screaming mad. at me? Yeah, dude. I was like, Jesus, am I in trouble? That guy is fucking mad. And it was like, because I'm telling you, because Freedom was the first, uh, I, I remember correctly, that was the first single. I, that was definitely the first song I heard. I think that was the first single they dropped. I think Killing the Name was the first. I, I Again, I'm going back by memory. I think Killing the Name was the first one, obviously edited. They had yeah, the edited yeah. version, Fuck and you when you too. heard the real version, you're like, "Fuck that edited version!" Oh, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but the part with Freedom, where he's just like, where it gets, yeah, where it gets, where, where yeah, he, they bring it down to like a low crawl, and then all of a sudden it's just like Freedom. And dude, there is nothing more primal than when he's yelling Freedom over and over again. And I mean, you could tell when he was in the recording studio, veins were shooting out of the top of his head. Yeah. Like, like, whoa, man! Yeah, he blew an over. You were going for it, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Rick Rubin produced him. Got a hematoma. Rick Rubin produced System of a Down. So he he always found a way to get those guys to reach that level they wanted to. So, I mean, hats off to that. But guys, they're only playing a handful of shows out here in North America. We don't know if they're playing anything else. I know Coachella is two of those dates, which oh. obviously we're not going to go to. Uh, yeah, but if we, if we... Go to El Paso then. If we Fuck sell it. out, but maybe they'll it. make more shows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. M- make it an effort. If you've never seen Rage, because you guys didn't, right? No, I need to see them. Make I need effort. to, but I'm not going to Coachella. Playing right now. Well, like I said, go to El Paso. El Paso is not a far ride from Vegas, dude. It's good. Um, well, it's, I mean, it's a far <laughs> ride, but it's a fun ride. It's a fun ride. It's, it's, a fun it's ride. so fun driving Love. through Utah. And New Mexico. It's for killing fun. it. It's not yeah, Utah. It's so fun. <laughs> it's not Utah. I put a pinwheel out the window. All right, negative people. Go see yeah. Rage. <laughs> I've seen them. I don't need to see them again. I'm not going to make the extra effort. I've seen them three times. You know, they're they're that's they, dad they, talking. That's dad Pete Spajic talking right there. I right have there. a three month kid. Sorry, yeah. a three month year old. I'm not I'm not driving cross country to see a band. Three month kid. A three month year old. Just, I just give him up after. <laughs> he said a three month year old. Yeah, on day ninety, I'm done. <laughs> is it is is having a hard time understanding time periods a side effect of ex, et cetera? Is that <laughs> et cetera? Yeah. My brain's never on. I'm, I'm, I don't sleep much anymore. But let me tell you something. Dio Patton is fucking ah, godsend. A cutie. On. He's so amazing. He's a little chub chub. He's uh, a chubby chub. Wow, we got off topic. We're just I like, we're talking I know, about you metal. guys want to talk dad talk. We're talking about metal, and then it's like, dude, I got the most dope baby. Hey, there's lots of metal dads <laughs> listening right now, and they think the same thing. It was like, yeah, he's right. <laughs> They're over here like, fuck your friends, Pete. He loves me. <laughs> I hope he does. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> Anyways, moving on to the next story. Here's a story that I thought was interesting, guys. Kirk Hammett says his Metallica riff ideas are shot down by James and Lars. All the time. Now, I personally think that James Hetfield 
is probably in the top three of the greatest riff writers of all time. Yes. Okay. Do I think Kirk Hammett has great riff ideas for any band in the world? Besides Metallica? Yes. (laughs) But when James Hetfield's like a top three riff writing idea guy, I mean, how do you get through to that? Does this not have like anybody else feeling like this is like the little brother being like, James never lets me do anything. No, I, dude, that's every member that's been in Metallica. That's what it feels like to that me. Every member not named Lars and James <laughs> is like that. Every one of them. I love Jason Newstead's uh, solo records. I love the riffs he did for many other bands. But and, let's compare. But here's let's my Let's compare. This Come is on. what I'm getting at, though. Let Hetfield do his thing. Step the fuck out of the way. Hey, look, let Hetfield do his thing. Absolutely. But at the same time, you would like to see James go, all right, let me see what you got. Yeah, but I also feel like... And I'm sure some of those ideas got passed. I don't. I want to just let James Hetfield all his... We get a record every five or six years from Metallica. Let's get the 14 ideas that, that guy has. I'm just saying, man. I, maybe I'm maybe I'm the only one on the other side of the fence, but I just want the Headfield riffs. No, that I'm guy's with you. Riffs I agree with are you. Fucking, I'm sorry, Kirk, dude. Just like I remember, other guys were arguing about smaller level bands like Machine Head, where uh, they couldn't get their ideas through to Rob Flynn. I'm like, well, Rob Flynn's ideas are fucking great. Not the last couple of years, but prior to that, let's just be honest. Like, let's let let Rob run it. But what know? I'm saying is, is I'm sure that there have been riffs that James is allowed to be on records. I'm not saying he gets... He, he didn't say every one of my... If you look at getting, the credits, man, Kirk Hammett doesn't have many songwriting credits but that's what, but, that, but, that, but I'm just saying he's got a few. Very he's got a few. few. So what I'm getting at is like, yeah, he's got a few. Not to sound like a total American, but don't you think if he wrote the better riff than James, then it would be on the album? But that's what I'm getting at. He None has, of the members of Metallica are like, well, that but one's he better. Has, but, like, but he has with a few tracks is all I'm saying. You think if 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 Metallica was like, we're just going to let Kirk write this record? Look, it's like the Beatles where you go John Lennon and Paul. They wrote the majority of the songs. But George and Ringo also delivered their brand. George, a George was amazing. Ringo's song sucked. When I they should have taken him out and done another fucking Paul or John riff. Let's be honest, dude. dude. I I like I like every Beatles song there is. I like them all. That's that can't be true. That's totally true. Is can that be true? What he just said? I don't know. I don't like the Beatles, so I you get the fuck out of my face. (laughs) Yeah, take that, everyone. Oh God, (laughs) stupid millennials. I don't like fucking bowl cut babies. I want some metal. I feel that there's artists that have. written songs and have an ear that is original to a, a, a point that nobody can fuck with. Absolutely. And I think James Hetfield is one of those people. Steve Harris from Iron Maiden is one of those people, right? Um, you can go through the list, and I'm not going to go through everybody. So I don't feel like... I think you should be like, I'm really happy to be in this company. Yes. And don't fuck with it. If you get to work with I know with how them. weird that sounds because these are creative people that I'm telling not That's to fuck with That's what I'm getting people. at, dude. When you're dealing with artists and when you're dealing with creative people, and look, it's not like... It's not like Kirk Hamming has been suffering along for his art. It's not like he hasn't getting, gotten progressively better every single year. That's what happens when you're a guitar player yeah, or but the, the, instrumentalist. But to, to Pete's point, and you know, I might be going out on the limb here, is when you're working with you know a musical genius, someone who is iconic, yeah. you have to be okay with living in their shadow. I think that that's part of the gig. He's right, but what I'm getting at is there has been a couple of times where James allowed Kirk's riffs on the album because he got the writing credit for it. Name one. 
I don't know which one it was. The God that failed. <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, there's there's something off. There's something from St. Anger. But that's a, <laughs> no, but all it's I'm not. saying is no, all it's I'm not. saying is is I think it's important. Don't that put St. Anger on Kirk. <laughs> I think it's important that James at least listens to Kurt's Kirk's riffs, and if they're not good enough, they're not good enough because yep. he's got he's got a uh, a level that James has to hit week in and week out. And if Kurt's not coming to the table with that kind of last, level, last question: Would you be excited to hear a Kirk Hammett Metallica record? I would. Yeah, excited isn't the emotion. Curious, yeah. curious. Yeah, I would. Curious. Yes, I would be curious as well. Yeah, but again, I would be like, don't. Don't don't undercut Headfield. Dude, I wouldn't be I'm buying the special edition pre-order if that's what we're all saying. All I'm saying is if you take out the solo in one, that song doesn't have what it has. I'm just saying everybody has a part in that band. No, no, I'm not I'm not downplaying anything to do with his solos or his addition to the band. I'm talking about the song. Yeah, you just talking about the hook. Lars and James are those songwriters and dude, let's not fuck with Metallica. Obviously, they're back on the right train with Hardwired as a lot of people felt, so let's just keep that train rolling. But with that, it was fun discussing that shit with you guys. Let's jump into our interview, guys, with the one and only Tyler Bates. Everybody, what's going on? It's better with the Metal Sucks podcast on the phone. I got Tyler Bates, pretty much the soundtrack of my uh, my entire life, man. And we're here to talk about many things, but the main thing that I, I really want to break down because I am a Las Vegas native, is the uh, latest Cirque du Soleil show that we're getting out here. It's called RUN, or the acronym R-U-N. Um, and uh, I really wanted to talk to you about that, Tyler, because I've been born and raised out here in Vegas. So Cirque du Soleil is kind of like a, a part of our town, and every single show has a really, really high standard for us locals out here. So tell me how you got involved in this project. <laughs> um. Actually, the the creative producer Stefan just gave me a call. I was at dinner one night, and you know he, he said that he was very familiar with my film work and album work, and and thought that uh, if I was interested, I would be uh, the right person to do the show. So I thought this would be an interesting new challenge, and um, it has been for sure. So <laughs> it's been fun. I can imagine because it's it's the first live action thriller done by the uh, the Cirque du Soleil crew. Was there a lot of cues that you had to nail exactly? Because in my mind, obviously, I haven't seen the show, but there's a lot of motion. It's kind of going to nonstop move. Was, was there any difficulty to the, some of these cues? You say was in the past tense, man. We're still going. Yeah, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> the show opens in a couple of weeks. Um, actually, you know, they're not. Uh, the performers are performing free in real time, so they're not performing to click tracks or inners. So they're listening to the music uh, as they're performing. So that adds a whole complete other element of um, challenge to composing the music. Uh, obviously, the various sections of, of any given cue, and they're like 8 to 15 minute long sections of music um it'll have to adjust once the performers hone in various uh segments of their their performances so uh their sequences so that's that was a little bit uh time intensive but really the the music is the first thing that happened in the show and then they started 
staging the acts to the music, and then as those were honed a little bit more, then we started refining music to accommodate the performance. So it's been um, it's been a really intense project with a, a considerable amount of uh, music to produce. That's really interesting because normally you come in kind of last. Is that correct? Yeah, and Cirque, you know, they always they always have an abstract element to their storytelling. So some of the story was sketched out when I began, and then it developed after I started writing music and, and delivering music to them. So um, it's been quite interesting how it's all coming into focus and to learn by nature of the process of how uh, Cirque does things. As but it- it's... It's been great that they've entirely embraced uh, like my musical voice or attitude. Is this the first time that you've done it in that um, order when it comes to soundtracks or any kind of thing? Because I don't know your stage uh, background. You, you haven't done a lot of stage plays, right, or anything like that music-wise? I haven't. It's definitely been of uh, interest to me for several years. And I've been working on developing a show myself. So um, my mind has been oriented toward it for a while, and I have a considerable amount of stage performance experience. So that's factored into um, perhaps how I think about the music for this show. Nice, man. And uh, as I mentioned, the catalogs of the soundtracks that you've done have been my entire life so it's 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 really just great to talk about that but i wanted i want to talk about uh the tv stuff it's a different format now than when we were growing it up it's very much almost more mainstream and more accessible to people these days um but the soundtracks i don't know because the way the format used to be you'd only have so much time to put an episode together and you have currently you have you have Stumptown coming out on abc if people haven't checked that out yet um and then everything else coming out this fall you've got the purge the second season's coming out on usa network primal and adult swim and then of course creep show on shutter how how has the preparation been for the tv stuff do you are you a little bit rushed to get these uh, soundtracks kind of completed for these shows a score for a TV show is a quick turnaround. Mm. Um, you know, so the Purge or, or Stumptown will be probably three to four days total to to write and produce the music, and then there's a period where uh, you know I'll, we'll, we'll send the music to the executives, and they'll 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 check it check it out and if they have any thoughts they'll give us the thoughts and then we commit to the final mix and delivery and wash rinse repeat but it's um what's what's fun about television um first off when i got into the business in the 90s uh television was not nearly as cool there really wasn't cable TV, at least there, there was not original content produced for cable TV so much at that time. So now that there's this gold rush of television formatted programming being created, um, you know, the, the, there, it, it's attracting a lot of A-list filmmakers and they're enjoying perhaps not traveling as much or the opportunity to delve much deeper into character. Uh, and the audience really enjoys the format 
you know, uh, it's 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 hard to go as deep into character in a film, you know, feature film where, you know, you can really only hold the audience's attention for the most part for two two and a half hours, like in the case of like Marvel movies and you know something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is kind of an anomaly for you know a film like that being as long as it is and having been as successful as it is, but. I think part of what actually fuels the success for a film like that is that so many people are now really delving deeply into character. You know, whereas the TV shows of the 80s and 90s were more almost procedural, whether they were comedies or whether they were cop shows, you could kind of just jump into it like Seinfeld or something. You didn't really need to see the episode, you know, subsequent to the one that, you know, before or after the one you're watching. Um, but now with all the great TV shows coming out, you know, people are really binge watching and digging deep into the, the character bits. And I think that, um, that that's really attractive to people because obviously they, uh, enjoy the, the, the fact that they can schedule the programming to, for whenever they want. Whereas, you know, movies, which are also great, uh, they're more, of a uh, collective uh, event, you know, where you're you're seeing a film with, you know, perhaps a couple hundred people at a time in a theater, and it becomes a pop culture topic of discussion on the week as opposed to a TV show, which grows over time, and then that becomes like a more of a longer-standing pop culture reference, you know, like Breaking Bad or something, you know. I mean, that's... That probably is etched into people's minds much more so than most of the the big blockbuster films of the past 10 years. Very true. No, it's it's, it's very true that, and and the format because um I feel like back in the 90s that there was so much censorship and limitations to television that it didn't have that same appeal as a feature film um because you couldn't take it to an R-rated level. Um, I remember The Shield was kind of, uh, in my mind, that really broke that boundary for me um, as a television watcher because yeah. I feel like I didn't watch TV prior to that. But then around the same time, it was like The Sopranos and stuff. So when that format changed, it, it's almost like we get more of what we get from a theatrical release if it's really quality stuff. You and, mentioned The Shield. It's like, yeah, it's one of my favorite shows of all time. Mm-hmm. And... That really, when I was watching that show, made me really think differently about scoring television. Because um, I was focused mostly on film and video game earlier in my career, and I still love working on films with great directors, but the process is so intensely harried with... Uh, it being entirely on a digital platform and, you know, the the multitude of test screenings and, and the editorial response to that and, and turn, then the music is constantly changing. It can be a bit maddening. It feels oftentimes like, you know, you're, you're building sandcastles. But in television, uh, the turnaround is, is quick but it's recurring and you actually become a fan of what you're working on and you get into the drama of it. And it's always interesting uh, and exciting to see what the next episode is going to be. So 
there's a, a different feeling working on television than movies. However, I, I think they're both uniquely interesting and compelling to uh, to work on. The Shield. Let's say this: uh, if if people haven't seen this show, it, it's groundbreaking. I don't know if it's got the hype that it deserves, but that's probably one of the best series finales I've ever seen in my life. Do you agree with me on that? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Perfect. Yeah. Oh, Vic Mack. Great. <laughs> I'll never yeah, forget. It was, it was great. I'm not going to ruin it, but there's a he just has a dialogue where he has to pretty much tell something to someone, and I'll never forget my heart sinking in my chest when everything came out of his mouth, and then. That is seriously one of the most, uh, the best constructed shows on television um, of all time. And I hope it gets the credit because I don't know if it does. Because I hear The Wire all the time and I love The Wire. I love The Wire with all my heart. But The Shield is, uh, you know, more important to me. So, anyways. Uh, I'm with you. You with I'm, me? I'm with you. No offense to anything, but uh, that one really left a strong impression on me. And I was, I found it in- incredibly compelling. Like, there was never a weak spot in the entirety of it for me. And that's seven so, seasons, dude. Yeah, that we're talking about. Yeah, it's, it was, yeah. It was, it was cool to uh, to meet Walton Goggins in my studio years later. <laughs> nice, but uh, yeah, and he, he was cool. Did you meet him on uh, which film? I know he did uh, House of a Thousand Corpses using that one, but which film did you get to meet him on that he was working on with you? No, he just came over oh, just came one over. night to work with work with Marilyn Manson and I on a, like an intro for one of the songs we did on the Pale Emperor uh. album. That's super so cool. That was man. fun. That's super cool. Yeah. So, um, as a, like I said, a fan of that, there's a couple films I didn't want to ask you directly about that I'm a huge fan of. And again, I don't know if there a lot of people want to hear about them, but there's a film that Matt Dillon directed years ago that uh, I probably watch once or twice a year. I think it's a really just great film. It's called City of Ghosts. And um, your mm-hmm. soundtrack, it's extremely subtle, but somehow um, it was done in, in a way that the dialogue almost wasn't as important. Tell me a little bit about this film and how you approached that soundtrack. It was, that was really one of the most interesting projects I've ever done. Um, it was, uh, it was fun to develop a lot of the electronic sounds for the score because they were entirely derivative of Stuff that uh, of instruments that uh, my friend Wolfgang and I sampled uh, that were played by different Cambodian musicians. <laughs> so it was uh, the whole thing was really quite interesting, and the music definitely has almost like a um, a fever dream quality to it, where you're not entirely ensconced in reality. Um, I thought Matt had a really interesting way of presenting uh, an abstract dimension, creating an abstract dimension in that that film, um, even though it could have just played out as, as a thriller of some sort. But um, it's really more of a, a psychological character piece. <laughs> it's pretty mm-hmm. bizarre. Yeah, I... Um, I enjoyed that though quite a bit, you know, and and Matt's a Matt's a fun person to work with and to to hang out with. He's uh, he's pretty deep as far as his musical knowledge, so um, that was a great experience. 
Nice. Yeah, it is a character in the film, the music, because you're you're following, you know, obviously the, the the people that the actors in the film, but then the music is what kind of brings you in. I think it's a very difficult to think, thing to do, um, but in the independent kind of film world, I feel like I it's allowed more um, than in the mainstream stuff, you know. But that film specifically, um, the soundtrack, yeah, it was very cool. So note wise, was Matt Dillon kind of like, hey, I want you to take this character, or did he fully trust you uh, on layering what you had behind what they were saying? Matt was very very present throughout the the process of the scoring process. I think, I think he was pleasantly surprised by the sound of what the score is, but he definitely got involved in the very much in the minutia of how the various instruments colored the dialogue and the space. And, um, you know, that was, was a very, uh, intense, ongoing collaboration and I don't mean intense in a negative way I mean it was it was really cool because obviously that that was his first uh, it was his directorial debut and he he co-wrote the script and um, he had so much of this story was in his head for years that uh, it was an incredible challenge to to create something that resonated appropriately with him because he, he thought about it so many different ways. Um, but I think he really caught, uh, something special on film and, and then given that he was, uh, he was looking for something non-traditional score wise. It, it really opened up the possibilities to do something weird and fun. Everybody that's listening to this interview, if you guys haven't seen city of ghosts again, I never know where to find films anymore because there's so many different formats, but it's a film. It's so worth your time. Please check it out. The soundtrack is, to, <laughs> to me, one of the best. And then since then, obviously, you know, so much has happened. 300, the James Gunn films that we wanted to talk about. I did want to bring up the... Um, James Gunn's one of my favorite stories in Hollywood. He came from Troma, obviously. Dawn of the Dead, I think, is the first score you did with him. I know he wrote that. Um, and then you've done every one of his directorial films, including his part in movie 43. Is, is that correct? Yeah. Yes. So yeah. recently, um, I'm sure you heard, because it's been kind of talked about everywhere, that Martin Scorsese kind of said a comment of the Marvel world not being cinema. And what, how do you feel? Because I didn't take offense to that when I heard it. I'm like, well, Martin Scorsese probably sees cinema in a different way. He grew up in a different time. But I know that a lot of people did kind of take offense to that. How did you feel about that comment? Well, yeah, I don't, I don't tend to make comments that could marginalize people's taste. <laughs> you know, I mean, Martin Scorsese has made just great, great films throughout his career, but you know, it's not based on comics. You know, mm-hmm. and the the fan base for comics is sophisticated sophisticated and many. I mean, anyone who's been to Comic-Con or any of the related uh, events that are thrown every month around just the states, you know, you see how devout uh, the the fans of comics happen to be. So to me, art is, is, you know, 
ex- expressing an idea or serving an idea with your particular craft in the in the you know when it comes to filmmaking um, appropriately. So there's art in everything. You know, there's art in pop music that is not on my playlist and won't probably make it to my playlist, but there's, you know, you just have to be open to the idea of that. And, and scoring films over, you know, the past 20 something years has opened my mind to, um, to styles of music that I wasn't as receptive to when I was playing in rock bands full time. So it, because I was challenged to have to come to understand what makes a certain style of music what it is and what's the good stuff versus maybe the not-so-good stuff, it, it really forced me to have a much more open mind about all musical ideas. And I would say in the realm of filmmaking, you know, sometimes, sometimes a donut is good, you know? It's okay, just to enjoy one. You know, so I don't know that Marvel is is stating that it's the most important or emotionally deep form of entertainment, but I do know that the fans of Marvel films love what they're doing, and they are always excited about the next Marvel film. So whatever they're doing there, they're doing doing it right because <laughs> they're reaching an audience who is appreciating the fact that they're producing these movies in a way that they find um, important to them in their lives and that they enjoy and you know Scorsese's made so many great movies that that I appreciate but some of them are not digestible by a mass audience you know the subject matters a little oftentimes a little intense for people. So, you know, I think there's validity to to pretty much everything that is is made, you know. Um, there's nothing wrong with making cult movies. Cult movies have inspired huge movie franchises later that, you know, garner all the the monetary success and and a lot of the accolades that really were inspired by these smaller movies that never get their credit, you know. And you know, I mean, I've worked with Rob Zombie on several movies. I think The Devil's Rejects is, I think, it's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. But it, I found it troubling to work on it. <laughs> it was it was disturbing, but you know, I love what he did, and I I think he's truly talented. And there's some people who would be straight up offended by it and not see the artfulness of that film and that's just not for them so i guess my answer to your question is is you know there's something for everybody and not everything is for for every individual i think as long as people are paying to go to the movie theater if you're a filmmaker you should be thrilled about that yeah i know i I completely agree with you on everything you're saying and as you did bring up rob zombie i just want to ask one more question before i let you go now when you did films for him and he is a musician does that make it harder to do like a film score opposed to someone who doesn't work in that field uh it would be if he were you know if he were directing in musical terminology 
but Rob never did that. Um, he, he was always great to work with creatively. And he, he essentially just left the finite aspect of what I was creating, um, to me. And it was a, it was a hell of a challenge cause he's, you know, I had met him a number of times just through friends, but, uh, when he was making Devil's Rejects, he he called me to take a look at the movie, and they were having trouble figuring out what the sound of the film ought to be. So uh, he gave me a cut of the movie, and, and I took about two to three weeks to develop a sound for that movie, and then he and the editor, Glenn Garland, uh, came to my studio, and I played him the first the first piece of music I wanted to share with them, which was a huge scene in the movie. And the music is so just completely like aggressive and filthy and like, you know, it's out there. But, uh, when I was done playing the scene, you know, I basically hit the space bar to stop my computer. And I turned around and looked at him and he was smiling. So I was, I felt pretty good about that. Um, I think I understood in the context of cinema, like a dimension of Rob's persona and in his art. Um, I think I understood that enough on a cultural level to bring that out in, in a score so that the music was still connected very much to him as an artist overall, not just his, his, that I was creating his music only as a director. It was an extension of everything that he's doing in his songs and the way he draws and everything. You know, so um, we had a pretty a pretty potent collaboration for several years. It was great. Nice. Was was the Freebird song at the end? Did he say, "Hey, put something on there," or did he already know he was going to have Freebird at the uh, climatic scene? Oh yeah, Rob selected the song. Yeah, he knew it, and um, yeah, of course. And he would talk to me about them, and more just in the spirit of of what he's thinking about with the movie. And you know, sometimes he'd ask my opinion or not. Especially like, uh, obviously, Devil's Rejects was not uh, budgeted like a Marvel film, so <laughs> you have to be very, you know, mindful of where you're spending your your pennies. So uh, at some point, they licensed some Terry Reed songs, and that music's so good in that movie. Um, I think Rob made really excellent choices with all the songs uh, for that movie. And, you know, continuing on into the other films we did, he's always had a great sense for music and... um, you know, again, it, it's fun. It's just fun to share and that side of it. That's not literally the the score, um, but he again, he gave me a great deal of creative support to experiment and and see what I could do uh, in the context of his filmmaking. Even though he'd already done uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. Dude, excellent, excellent, excellent. So I got to tell you, everybody, I want to remind you guys one more time before I let Tyler go here. Guys, check out the new Cirque du Soleil show out here at the Lexor in Las Vegas. It's going to premiere November 14th, guys, and it's going to have a great run, but make sure you check it out. It's going to be the first action, live action thriller that Cirque du Soleil's done. I'm super excited about it, guys. 
it's worth flying out to Vegas to check out for sure. Make sure you guys do also check out some of the shows that are coming out that Tyler just worked on that we mentioned. That's The Purge on the USA Network, Stumptown on ABC, Primal on Adult Swim, and then Creep Show on Shudder. All that stuff. Tyler, I want to thank you so much. And guys, check out City of Ghosts. I'm going to tell you that right now. And if you haven't seen that one, make sure you check out Killer Joe. Two fantastic soundtracks that Tyler did all through his career, man. So I want to thank you so much for everything you've given us, but also, man, for calling into the Metal Sucks podcast. My pleasure, Peter. Thanks a lot for having me on.
the Metal Sucks Podcast. Sucks Podcast.
So what's a nice place like this doing round people like us? Alright guys, and we are back. First song you heard is off. If I had to pick a soundtrack that you have to pick up by Tyler Bates, it's going to be off the film Killer Joe. One of my favorite soundtracks of all time. It's a short one. It's like 25 minutes. It's not a long one. But that first that song is called Texas Motel. The second one, you know we had to take something off the Devil's Reject score. That is Run Baby Girl. And then the third one, I'm sure you all recognize. That is off 300. And then the last song we played, the fourth one, is off the last record from Marilyn Manson that Tyler Bates did with him. That is We Know Where You Fucking Live. And that is Heaven Upside Down. So, yeah, it's great, dude. Because I... When, I just watched a film. I, what I watch? Fool for Love, the Sam Shepard play, the Robert Altman film from 1985. And I, I was doing this episode, and I'm like listening to the soundtrack because they got a lot of good soundtrack songs, but the score non-existent. And I'm like, because I love that Killer Joe score so much. I'm like, if Tyler Bates got to do this fucking movie, this Robert Altman movie of a Sam Shepard play, it would, it would go through the roof because there's something very similar to it in Killer Joe to me in my mind. But uh, anyways, that's just fanboying he out. He probably would have let Kurt do a riff on what He would not have let Kirk Hammett do any riffs. <laughs> he would have been like, dude, Kirk. It's like executive decision. Do the solo for me, Kirk. That's what I he would I saw say. this picture of Kurt in the, in the corner holding his guitar like, huh? Eh? <laughs> no. Guys. <laughs> I got a new song idea. <laughs> Email us. Let me know. Rise to offend at gmail.com. Do you guys want to hear the Kirk uh, Hammett riff machine Metallica record? Let me know. Maybe I'm, I'm the asshole I'm definitely curious. Maybe, maybe I'm I, the I asshole. You are the the and again, that's that's instead of a James and Lars record. That you got to understand, it's replacing. I want to hear what he could bring to the table. I can't right. wait for the hardcore Kirk Hammett stands to hit us up right on in. Twitter. Right? No shit. Because all I'm joke. saying is, There's is you did any. say earlier in the episode that you were a fan of Jason Newstead's riffs and his record. What would have happened if they would have allowed? No, him no, to no. Play? I said none of those compare. But I am a fan of his riffs, but they're not on the level. Oh, okay, they're not on the level. Okay, dude. Metallica's like, if there's electricity, they're sending. 50,000 seats. This is, this is a level beyond music. Like, let those guys write as much music as they possibly can and put it out to us. Everybody else, stay out of the way. That's All what right. I'm saying. That's, this is me. Anyways, so write us in. Tell me if I'm the asshole. Maybe I am. I don't know. Um, you and are. then. Bes- <laughs> you are the I think asshole. I might You're be. the asshole. I think Brandon. I might we be. We all know the that Brandon's here. the yeah. asshole. Not true. He's the nicest guy in the world. <laughs> With that, guys, we got some really, really cool five star reviews on the iTunes. I want to thank you guys very much. Tommy wrote one, and then I know, I don't know the other name on there, but it was a great review. And they compared me to Joe Rogan, which <gasps> was really cool, man. But uh, that was really, really cool. Those, You're our Joe Rogan. Those five star reviews, guys. I'm I, your Ari. That's, uh, like I said. <laughs> That's all we ask for. You are my Ari. Um, <laughs> on the iTunes. Quick click. Makes us happy. We're real close to the number. Our goal is 200. We're at like 192 or something. We're right there. So back in the day on our other, sh- on our other podcast, Rise to Offend, Jocelyn said if we ever reached 200, she would shave her head completely. We're not doing that for Metal Sucks. She did three quarters of the way. I did. I shaved half my head. Um, yeah. But I, you know, listen, you guys had your chance to see Bald Joslin. And then I realized that no one wants to see that. Mm. <laughs> mm, I do. And also, guys, <laughs> make sure you check out our documentary podcast, Rise to Offend, um, every week. Uh, that is as well. And we want to thank you guys that are listening to both of our shows as the time goes on. And until next week, our friends. The Metal Sucks podcast is signing off. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.